Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on Marketing. If you haven't already done so, please visit ProRelevant.com and sign up for all of these episodes and podcasts. I am the author of the newly released book, The Post-COVID Marketing Machine, Prepare Your Team to Win. You can find more information about this book at marketingmachine.prorelevant.com. Today, we're going to find out about the challenges of digital advertising and ad tech. We'll be talking with Noor Nasir, VP Media Innovations and Technology at Basis Technology. So let me tell you a little bit about Noor. Noor is VP of Media Innovations and Technology at AdTech at the AdTech firm Basis Technologies. She leads client thought leadership and innovative digital media strategy development. She guides clients on how to evolve media strategy to accommodate the fast-changing consumer behavior and media trends. She's written for and been cited in industry outlets, including Adweek, Media Post, and Smart Brief. She's spoken at events for the four A's, the American Advertising Federation, the American Marketing Association, and SX SXSW. She hosts the AdTech podcast, AdTech Unfiltered, and prior to Basis Technologies, Noor served in media roles at Starcom MediaVest Group, and she is a graduate of Northwestern University. Uh, welcome, Noor. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's so good to, uh, to have you as well and uh, look forward to the discussion. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your backstory and how you got into marketing. Sure. So I think at some point when I was probably in junior high or high school, sometimes you don't have a single desired career path. Maybe there's a couple of different paths you're thinking of. And I think marketing was one of those for me, but what that actually meant and what I would actually do wasn't clear. And I don't think it was clear for quite some time. And eventually you graduate from college and you start looking for work and the media or advertising angle of marketing is what became applicable and or accessible to me. So I applied for an opportunity after working very briefly in finance, very briefly. And I just knew that going full-blown exclusively into the finance sector wasn't quite right. So I was looking to do something that was that mix of both analytical skills and some more of those creative skills as well. So I applied to a role at Starcom Media Best Group as a media planner and buyer. And I haven't really taken a look back from the advertising and digital advertising world since. Yeah, absolutely. And and certainly with Northwestern and, and I went to University of Chicago, the analytical side uh, stuck with me. I stayed in, the, in marketing, or but uh, I still have the analytics side. So, uh, it, and I think combining analytics and marketing is really a, a great combination, that's for sure. So you're at uh, Basis Technologies now. So tell us about Basis. Yes. So eventually, I think the the reality of our business, the marketing sector and world, is that it's increasingly focused on analytical assessment or optimizing, making sure you really understand the return on investment. And so going down a pathway that was increasingly dig digitally focused felt like the right pathway for me. So there was an opportunity to work at a company that was focused on digital advertising software at the time, and eventually what would evolve into ad tech called Centro. Now, many years later, Centro was rebranded to 
baseless technologies in 2021. And so I've, I've been with the company for quite a few years now. It's been over a decade. And um, it, there were more opportunities that enabled me to get more acquainted with a company that's trying to solve for a lot of challenges that exist in the digital advertising space. So that's how I got here. Yeah, not bad. Well, the uh, and there's uh, and it's amazing. And as we get further into the discussion, it is amazing what some of those uh, uh, challenges are. And then it's not only the challenges, but it's also the change in the challenges because they keep changing every day. And uh, and so we met at an AMA meeting and where you were the moderator of a group. And uh, one of the you know, one of the persistent topics is uh, digital marketing and uh, and the future of audience targeting. And so, for example, in Q4 of last year, the IAB reported a dramatic reduction in third party identifiers. And so I guess the question then is, how should marketers interpret that news? Sure. So to even give a little more background and context to that, uh, I'll say that that's a topic that I, that I do a lot of exploration in because my focus is on learning about emerging trends and topics that are challenging marketers, advertisers, brands, and agencies. And so one of those topics in, in the event that Guy and I had met each other at an AMA event, uh, the topic of focus was the cookieless future and the future of audiences. So found a couple of stats to just try to continue to illuminate the fact that we're moving increasingly towards a world in which some of the things that have attracted us about digital marketing and advertising are going to continue to be depleted. And then at some point, they'll be totally extinguished. We're going to have to turn to new sources of gathering data on audiences. So to that point that Guy brought up earlier, as far as the IAB reporting this uh, serious reduction in ad signals, that is a reflection of us moving towards this world where cookies or third-party cookies, which um, so many marketers have been acclimated to relying upon, are eventually not going to be available. So um, looking at that as a challenge, as an, an opportunity for people in the marketing space at large to figure out how we can identify solutions to deal with the fact that something we've been so accustomed to relying upon so we can find audiences simplistically and, and frankly, without permission, is something that we can't do moving forward. Um, now we're gonna need to figure out how we're gonna fill that gap with permission so that we can uh, be considerate of people's privacy and we can still get data on what individuals are doing, but explicitly with their permission. So that's just giving a little bit of background on this particular topic and the fact that there is this overarching reduction of something that we've been so accustomed to leveraging. Yeah, right. And I think the uh, that without permission and with permission distinction is now becoming really at the forefront of the whole of the whole industry and how you can end up really doing a, a very accurate job in targeting, but only in a in a permissioned way where where you, you have the the authority to go off and actually target and advertise to those specific individuals. And, uh, you know, Google keeps threatening to remove their the cookies. It looks like it's pretty certain that it's uh, that it's definitely in front of us. They've delayed it a couple of times. And then, of course, Apple uh, already blocks uh, cookies on Safari. And so uh, a couple of questions there. So how else are they impacting this concept of precision advertising? And who do you see them affecting the most with uh, what they've done? 
So Apple made a decision to block uh, cookies from being collected a long time ago. In fact, it's been at least a decade since they blocked them. And uh, I'll take another step back and say that Apple is in the advertising business in many different uh, facets. And one of those ways in which they were, uh, I guess, in some ways, like an intermediary or a platform by which we were able to gather data via third-party cookies was through their browser i.e. Safari. So they have many different means of accessing revenue. So I think the depletion of, uh, or rather the not giving people access to third-party cookie data really wasn't a big priority for them. They have a lot of other revenue streams. And Apple is actually, even though they've done away with cookies and they have no plans to bring them back, uh, they are working on building out a advertising um I don't know what the right way to describe it is. They're they're building out. I, I don't know if they're using the word network, but they're they're building a solution that more uh, marketers and advertisers and brands can turn to, so that they can target with permission or permissions that are deemed appropriate based on Apple's philosophies around privacy. And Apple has a very strong um, external rhetoric and philosophy around what and how they're protecting general consumers because they have such a consumer-friendly device that is beloved by millions of people around the world. So um, in terms of going back to your question, there are things that they've already done that have affected a lot of people. I think in some ways we've just gotten acclimated to the fact that Apple is not a resource group by which we can gather that information. And alternatively, as they're working on building out a new type of solution, we don't have all the details on what they're going to do so that we can leverage audience besides knowing that they're going to do it in a way that we expect to be permission oriented. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And um, and certainly in terms of where they seem to be going in terms of having this ability to uh, in at some point in the future, be able to provide that that kind of targeting. Um, does that only uh, do you think that will only apply to people that are subscribers to their services or owners of their devices? Or do you think that'll be will stretch out past uh, those two kind of uh, areas of their you know, customer base? So when you say like uh, access to people, do you mean that you'll marketers would only have access to people within the Apple network, as in they own an Apple device. I just want to make sure yeah. I'm asking question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So either an Apple device or Apple TV or subscribing to, you know, the, whatever it is that, I mean, they've got so many different things that you can either subscribe to or actually buy their devices uh, from. Yeah, I believe that is the case. And I think that's a part of their, uh, the cachet of leveraging something that's available by Apple is that it's exclusively available through their network of devices. You can't get access to this very specific profile of people and this popular um, network of people unless you're tapping into their solution. So that doesn't mean that you can't reach people on Apple devices. Alternatively, you can, um, but oftentimes it's going to be with more derivative data sources and it's not going to be direct from Apple who, you know, they have all the, uh, you know, nuts and bolts and specifics around their user bases. And I think they're still architecting exactly what that's going to look like as they um, continue to um, like flush out what their solutions mm. want to be. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the, I mean, for advertisers, it's so valuable, uh, you know, to know mm -hmm. exactly who's reading and, and, and viewing and, and consuming your, your content 
and uh, or the content where you want to advertise. And so it's uh, it really does help them to significantly improve their their capabilities. And you mentioned ROI early on. The ROI uh, has to have gone down. Uh, you know, as your targeting gets less and less specific, then your ROI you know typically goes down. And I can't imagine that it that it's done anything else. Yeah, I think that's right. And I don't think that I I don't think and obviously I haven't spoken very recently to any uh, advertising executives over at Apple, um, but I don't feel like it is in their um, like long term or short term goals to solve for some of the loss that is inevitably being suffered from an ROI perspective, but they are giving people an opportunity to target how we'll be able to target how we're going to feel more comfortable both as marketers and as consumers, sharing that data and leveraging that data is to be seen. So there's a lot of, I think there's some mystery and there's definitely curiosity around what they cook up, especially since Apple had originally come up with a um, advertising network called IAD um, a little over a decade ago. And one of the comments that people had about it from a marketing, a digital marketing and advertising perspective was that it didn't allow for very robust targeting, especially Mm -hmm. in an age where really precise targeting was an expectation of of a lot of advertisers. So eventually they sunset that solution. And now many years later, they're coming back to the table, offering something that I think aligns with their brand values and what they're really um, putting out into the marketplace. So we'll, again, at I, I wish I, I knew more about what they're cooking up, but I'm very curious. Yeah, I think uh, I think where you all are, I think all of uh, my clients and and uh, certainly yours as well would uh, just like to have certainty about what the future is. And and I guess in the tech world, you can't really get certainty, at least not for very long. Uh, there's so much competition and change uh, going on. Well, so it seems like Apple was the first really to uh, remove and block cookies on Safari. And then it looks like next year, uh, looking forward, then it really will be with where third-party cookies will go away altogether. And um, so what do you think will happen then? Uh, if we, we've lost then uh, Apple and then now probably everything. Uh, so what do you think is uh, on the horizon once that happens? Yeah, there are other browsers that have also done away with cookies because they have a similar type of um philosophy as far as collecting data or not collecting certain types of data that have otherwise been popularly collected. So it's the fact that uh, Google Chrome in particular, which is by far the most popular uh, web browser in, I think, the world, uh, will no longer be collecting that kind of data. So as far as what things will look like at that point, I think this is this interim period where advertisers and brands and marketers have a responsibility to figure out what is our next step forward? What are we going to do when these cookies are no longer available? What are acceptable uh, solutions that we're open to testing today so that we're not completely caught off guard Mm -hmm. in the event that cookies are completely gone? And I know I haven't really gone into the details of this, and I know you have a broad spectrum of different types of marketers who come and listen to your podcast. Uh, guy. So I'll, I'll share a little a bit about that. The nature of third-party cookies is that we're essentially, there's really no other way of saying it. We're tracking what people are doing as they're browsing across the web and as they're going from website to website. And that type of uh, collection allows us to really understand uh, customers or people's intentions or habits, behaviors, the likelihood with which they may take some sort of subsequent behavior. So for example, um, if I go to Guy's website, that I probably 
know something about Guy or I'm curious about something that Guy is offering or I've listened to something in association with him. So I could be in a segment of the population that in theory, if I wanted to retarget from an advertising perspective, me demonstrating that behavior online is probably at least reason enough to maybe retarget me with new messaging associated with maybe products or services that guy is bringing to the table, for instance. So not even having that, which that's a pretty baseline type of third-party cookie tactic that a lot of digital marketers and advertisers have been using, taking that off the table is going to be a really hard blow for many advertisers who have liked the speed with which they've been mm. able to build out audiences and uh, the lack of kind of responsibility that came with actually effectively enabling that type of solution. So um, to, to go back to the point of what are people going to do? They need to test now. They need to look at what some alternative solutions are so that they aren't caught off guard. And there's no reason to be caught off guard because mm. this is the time to figure out what you are open to stomaching and what can be potentially filling the gap uh, as far as what uh, cookies will no longer allow. Yeah, absolutely. I was uh, actually going, uh, I was showing one of our employees what retargeting meant. And it is incredible how fast a, a, a website or a vendor can turn around your clicks on their website to advertising on, on in your browser. So I buy my shirts, this shirt as well from uh, paulfrederick.com. And, and uh, so you, I can go into their site and I can click on a green shirt or a blue shirt or whatever it happens to be. And within seconds on the next browser window that I go to, that specific shirt will show up and it it is it's truly amazing how fast it works. It is really amazing how fast that that whole process works. And unfortunately, well, I guess uh, you know that is the question: will uh, will retargeting be totally gone, or is that um, or will just be less capable? Or what do you see? What do you see happening there? Yeah, I mean that goes back to the concept of what the tracking enables. Is that I went to that shirt's website. And now it's enabled, the third-party cookie is enabling me to track from that site to a subsequent site. And moving into the future, that tracking, that tr cross-site tracking capacity is what is going to be erased when all these mm. web browsers don't allow us to do that. So, I mean, I once would ask a question just like that guy, I would think, well, that can't possibly be gone. I mean, from the perspective of a digital marketer, it just seems like such a perfect opportunity. I think what I think this is a perspective that some people have is that as a whole, everybody from a, I'm not even going to say a marketing perspective, from a data collection perspective, and it's not just marketers, other people are in the business of just collecting data and selling data and using data for okay, good and terrible purposes. There's all different reasons why people collect data. But in the grand scheme of things, people were doing it maybe too often for nefarious reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, they were using it in ways that they shouldn't. And it wasn't just the initial collection. It was the disbursement of the data thereafter mm -hmm. in ways that are just would really scare people if they knew a lot about it. I don't think the vast majority of digital advertisers and marketers are in that business. They're not looking to use it that way. And they haven't been necessarily using it that way. But it's kind of like the fact that there have been those cohorts out there that have sort of ruined it in part for the rest of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think the, one of the challenges too, is that uh, when I click on a site and I accept the cookies um, we don't really know what we're accepting. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody reads it. And there's, I mean, there just isn't enough time in the day to read, to read all of that and then read it on, you know, it could be 10 or 15 new sites every day that you might visit. And there's no way you're going to have time to uh, actually read all of that and know exactly, well, they're not going to share my data. They are going to share my data. They're only going to share it a little bit. And, uh, you know, whether it's nefarious or whether it's even on the, you know, the up and up, nevertheless, uh, they, by clicking that accept, you've given them almost a, you know, a, a carte blanche to, to use your data the way, the way you want or the way they want. And uh, which kind of also brings up the, the question of is that why isn't that I, why is it that I do not own my data? I mean, they are making potentially uh, money off of my data. Why don't I own it? And that brings up this concept of the uh, of zero party data. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that as and what role that might play as we move forward to uh, in terms of audience targeting and and what have you in the in the in the new cookieless world. I think it's a little mysterious, or the jury's still out on what really distinguishes truly zero party data from first party data. In that. Um, people want to very specifically classify zero party data as data that you have proactively and intentionally shared with a brand. Really in theory, first party data should be doing the same thing. The idea is that we should be giving explicit permission when that data is shared. I think different brands, different aggregators might have some different language that they use in reference to what qualifies for each. I will say zero party data has been mentioned on some occasions, maybe it's coming back uh, as a language that's being, I'd say resurfacing. This isn't the first time Mm. or era in which I've heard the language zero party data, but the concept really needs to be the same. When we're asking people for something, they should be willfully sharing it. So I'd say an example of sharing zero party data is when I want some sort of custom Um, solution to be provided to me, I might be prompted with a quiz from a brand saying, find out the, I don't know, the the shirt that's right for you, right? You mentioned the example of the shirt earlier. So maybe they want to get some different uh, qualifiers on what my preferences are, such as what fit do I like? Do I like a tight fit? Do I like a loose fit? Do I like a medium fit? Do I like a crew neck shirt? Do I like a long sleeve shirt? What type of material do I like? And I'm willfully sharing all that data in the quiz. And then in order for me to get the actual recommendation or result from sharing information in that back and forth I'm having with the brand, you're going to say, you're going to need to share your email and or other types of data, first party data, which in this case, maybe it could be also defined as zero party data with that brand. So I'm willfully doing it. I'm explicitly knowledgeable about the fact that data of mine is being passed along. And uh, subsequently, uh, I think some marketers could refer to that as zero party data. So that definitely is on the rise, the trend of creating that sort of gamification, that idea of a value exchange. And I think more brands, whether they call it one thing or the other, will need to get into the business of doing that. Yeah, and I was uh, I was thinking of of that as well. Uh, But it's actually I was thinking also more where uh, let's say that there is a third party that is a, a database of of anybody's user information and it's and I've kind of then said okay well you can have my information in terms of you know my age demographics where I live etc cetera, etc cetera. and um, but for me giving that to you I want you to charge every one of the advertisers that wants to use that and then where I could potentially even 
um, you know, I don't know if it's a lot of money or not. I guess it depends on how much you browse, but where I could then potentially start to get some of the money back that the advertisers are right now reaping a hundred percent of it when it is my data. And uh, I don't know, have you seen it that way as well? Or is that uh, kind of far-fetched still? I think it's still a little far-fetched at this time in that it would require coming up with a system and who is going to be responsible for both paying you out and validating or ensuring that your data is only being shared with certain parties, who's going to take on that labor and responsibility? Mm. And I don't know that there's been a lot of, if, if it really was something that had popularized, I think more of us would be familiar with how that opportunity is coming to the table. I would say another way in which that sort of exists and has been around for some time is sometimes like focus groups, right? Where you're mm. volunteering to share information and maybe some specifics about your demographics are being shared. It's not necessary that, you know, my name and, you know, my, all the nuances uh, around my very particular uh, bio data are being passed along. But um, that would be an example where I think there's uh, a translated or value exchange experience that somewhat equates to what you're describing. As far as all the other alternatives, I just see there being a lot of um, roadblocks to both offering uh, or figuring out what you're being paid and then subsequently knowing that the data isn't being passed along to additional resources. So mm. if you hear anything about it, let me know because <laughs> I, I'd be curious if, if that really comes to fruition. Yeah, interesting. I was uh, uh, very, very interesting. I was thinking that that was further along with. So thank you for that. Um, so uh, with all of these changes, uh, you know, when you think about maybe back 20 years when as an advertiser, you would buy linear TV and you'd buy a demographic women from age, you know, 45 to 55 or men from 20 to 30 years old or whatever it happens to be or print. You might buy a print magazine and they give you some demographics and, and that's all you got. Uh, now, it might be, you know, in some cases that with um, with print, you might have filled out as a as a subscriber, you might have filled out a BRC card, a business reply code card. And uh, and so you might have been able to give a little bit more uh, specificity as to who you were. But nevertheless, at very at, at least nowadays, we would consider that pretty fuzzy targeting. 20 years ago, that was actually considered pretty accurate. And um, so do you think digital marketing will eventually be that fuzzy or do you think there'll be some kind of a middle period in terms of where we are today with cookie-based targeting versus where we're going to go versus where print and other uh, traditional media might be? I think it will be a combination, not necessarily just in the middle, but it will depend on how much labor any marketer wants to put into permissibly collecting very specific data points and then figuring out how you can let uh, the users of that data or, or rather the, um, the folks that give you that data, let them know that, that this is subsequently being used. So I, I would say, for instance, banks do a really good job of, at least in my experience, they send me communication and they let me know, these are ways in which we won't share your data. These are ways in which we will share it. These are areas in which you can affect or control the sharing of that data. These are areas where you can't. And sometimes I look at those things and I think, well, at least it's being communicated to me. But in some ways, I don't know enough about what I could potentially change and why there are things that I'm not in control of and why the bank 
is in control of, of that type of collection. And alternatively, like looking at other types of collection that potentially can be done or should be done, um, I think we have to uh, wait and see what that ultimately looks like. Mm. Yeah, interesting. And, um, you know, one thing that we've seen, uh, and I hate to say it, you know, the 20 years I've been doing marketing analytics since then. And, uh, you know, there's no question that the ROI of a lot of the offline traditional channels like print and TV has gone down. And the ROI of digital where the targeting got better and better and better and better, the ROI of that just, you know, skyrocketed really. And, um, and, and, and now actually even today before the, the cookie-less future, so to speak, takes hold, uh, print and some of the other publications, these fuzzy targeting has actually started to come back. And uh, it may be just because they're not advertising as much there. And so you have a, a smaller audience, but you have a, maybe a more unique, a, a more unique audience. And it might be because of that. Uh, but uh, what I would expect, and I think you've been hinting at it and, and, and saying it as well, is that as these targeting mechanisms kind of go down, then the ROI of those channels are going are, are gonna to go down a little bit, which then means that you know, you, the, the shift again will be a little bit away from digital and a little bit back to the, some of the traditional channels. Is that kind of what you're expecting as well? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the larger point uh, to share is that we are going to move back to a middle ground, but that there will be variation. So to your earlier point, it is going to go back to being a little bit more fuzzy. In some instances, there's no way around it without some of the cookie-oriented targeting and other type of identifiers that have been historically known to be permissible and expected to be permissible for an extended period of time. So some things will just be fuzzy. And then in other instances, I think when some brands are able to figure out I can offer enough value to my customers or audiences in a way in which they want to share this data with me and I can let them know how the data is going to be used, then those people will have a increasingly rare opportunity to continue to target with purpose. But it just won't be as simplistic as just inadvert inadvertent isn't quite the word, right word. It's that consumers have been unconscious to the fact that so much collection is happening mm. in relation to them. And on a subconscious level, they see that, oh yeah, that ad is relevant to me, but they're not always processing the fact that they have been put into a funnel based on the fact that their behavior has been essentially spied upon. And I'm saying that as a person who works in this business, I don't know that it's always a terrible thing, right? If I mm. patron a store and I visited that store, I have an intention around it then in theory, if I was asked to sign up for a mailing list, it's okay for them to retarget me. Assume that you went into a store and there was just video surveillance footage of the fact that you went and then they were retargeting you. That's kind of the way that third-party cookies have operated. So there are going to be instances in which uh, we will not be able to target the way that we once did. And it's going to either require one of two things, a lot of creativity to figure out how do we work around the fact that this collection isn't going to be as easy as it once was, or what is some um, alternative that we are going to be open to knowing it's not going to be as effective or as easy as it once was. Mm, yeah, exactly. I relate the, an experience that, that my wife and I had, we went out shopping for a new car. Well, actually it might've been now maybe eight or nine months ago. 
And uh, we went to Toyota, Kia, and I don't know, a handful of other dealerships. And then we went online to get more information. And I was really surprised that the only company with a highly considered product like a new car, that the only company that immediately retargeted me was Kia. So when I purposefully went on, you know, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to go on here. I told my wife, I'm going to go on here. We're not going to be in stealth mode, even though I know I'm going to get retargeted. And I was really surprised that Kia was the only one that immediately responded with retargeting me. And then we even got the retargeting, you know, after doing the investigation on our, our laptop, we got retargeted on our, on our smart TV. And then within two days, GM finally came back. And then they started retargeting me and only for a couple of days on, on the TV. And, uh, and then otherwise everything was gone. I, I would have thought that for a, you know, a highly considered product like that, it would have lasted a lot longer. And I think if you're not a marketer and not a technology kind of a marketer, and I, you know, I, I kind of like, you know, watching that kind of stuff uh, take place then, um, you know, it was kind of interesting to see it unfold right before your eyes. And, um, and then my wife was going, oh, my God, they shouldn't have that kind of information on me. And yet she's being retargeted all the time. So. Yeah, I, um, I think about things like that. And of course, it's going to be somewhat speculative, even when we observe those kinds of behaviors, or we observe those outcomes, I should say, as far as I'm getting retargeted. What led to that retargeting? What type of tactics must must the advertiser or marketer have put forward in order for me to be targeted very quickly, like Kia, or with there being a little bit of a lag, like GM? Is that um, a fault of the uh, mechanics or the tactics that they're leveraging? Was it something intentional that there was a delay? It's it's always a little bit hard mm. to know because the nature of this type of tactic is that it's all based on real-time biddable impressions. Mm. So the speed with which they're able to reach you was likely um, a, a mechanism or an, a factor in how fast they were able to reach you. Whereas um, with the old school ways of targeting, you know, if we want to call it targeting via billboards or television, it's based on a spot. It's based on flight mm. dates. You're going to be reached when it's scheduled. And uh, these these are things that we've become really acclimated to is just knowing that in a very tight window, when I presume my prospective Kia customer is going to want to purchase this car, maybe Kia's presumption is that it's in a really tight window. This person is dedicating a couple weekends to this. We need to get in aggressively and make sure that Kia is top of mind. Maybe there's also an element to the fact that there are some key competitors and they don't want you to take a deal associated with one of them. Um, but again, this is, this is all speculative, yeah, yeah. but the magic qualities of that programmatic or digital advertising. Well, and you bring up a good point too, and I appreciate your, your feedback there. It's also what, it's not only whether they wanted to or not, but it's also what the technology was underlying it and what their overall strategy might've been for those weeks and months or whatever it was when we were looking. And then also whether they were willing to bid enough. Uh, you know, it could have been that uh, Kia's sales were low and they said, hey, we're going to bid a whole bunch of money for this thing. And uh, everybody else, their sales, they were happy. They couldn't or that during COVID, they couldn't get the parts. So they didn't really need the demand. So they they cut way back. So, uh, you know, that's a really good point as well. Um, let me uh, change the topic a, a little bit. I always like to uh, talk about uh, uh, younger marketers getting into the business of marketing. And so what would 
what kind of advice would you give a young marketer and then also uh, specifically a young marketer as well that might want to be getting into digital advertising? Sure. So going back to that origin story I was sharing with you is that I, I thought I wanted to work in marketing. I heard there was a creativity element and there's a business element, but there was a lot of vagueness, even though I had taken a lot of marketing classes in college. So I think getting acquainted through doing some Googling, understanding what different types of vocations are from an entry-level perspective first, even if you don't plan to apply to them, educate yourself and then learn a little bit about what potential career pathways are going to be too. Of course, you may break away and not go down different paths, but get familiar. And then you want to start applying to internships. I, I know um, it's a com it's oftentimes a competitive labor market. I, I've heard a lot of different types of trends in the advertising space. There was a great resignation. And um, ultimately, we've now dealt with a lot of terrible layoffs uh, affecting the digital advertising and ad tech sector. So young people really want to familiarize themselves with um, what type of pathway do I want to go down? Because I, I do think it's a competitive workspace. And um, thinking about what do I really want to do? What are some of the skill sets I could bring to the table? And then ultimately, you've got to intern, right? I, I think interning is, is a safe pathway to test without needing to marry yourself to a particular um, company or brand. So that's where I would start things off and um, kind of kind of go from there. It, it incidentally worked out for me that I worked initially at Starcom Media Vest Group, and they have a rotational program where internally you can test different um, departments or different brands, and there are different responsibilities because it's um, it's a global holding company. So there's a lot of opportunity. So that is also something I would recommend if you can move to. And it makes sense for you to a bigger city where there's more opportunity to try a lot of things and it's just baked in. So you don't have to do the, you know, the heartbreaking work of saying, actually, this isn't for me. I'm, I'm ready to cut out early and you feel uncomfortable about that. Uh, that would be another recommendation for me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, and I think you're right, though. And I think um, a lot of uh, young folks coming out of college that I've been interviewing over the years uh, those that have done the research and have really, you know, understand kind of at least at, at, at some level they, that they've done some research to really understand what the differences are and potentially even what the challenges are or the opportunities really are. They those those marketers definitely stand out much better than those that haven't done the research. Yeah. So thank you for that. Uh, before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to to add? Yeah, I mean, I think that last question you asked about the the young marketers piece is something that's really taking me back to when I was young. And I've also interviewed a lot of people and it makes me think about sometimes hearing from young applicants and sensing that that type of research has been done or hasn't been done, or there is a familiarity uh, or there isn't one. And you'll always have a massive leg up by putting in time. And I don't mean mm -hmm. like a quick weekend of study or a quick night of study before you try to regurgitate things to somebody mm -hmm. in the interviewing process. I mean, really committing yourself. I find a lot of people are reluctant to that. Working in this business requires like a daily commitment. And maybe that's true for a lot of different opportunities and sectors and industries, but it's especially true in the ad tech and digital advertising space where 
we're, we're, we're standing on shaky ground. The topic we've discussed uh, across this podcast is something that is frightening a lot of people because it is uh, impacting something that is we're, we're so reliant upon for so many tactics and ad campaigns to be successful. So we all need to make that constant commitment. So if you're uh, not ready to make it at the very, very beginning, you're not setting yourself up for the success or the responsibility that you're going to take on as you continue to work in the digital marketing landscape. So that's just one more additional point to make. Well, and I think it's also um, a signal to the potential hiring company and hiring manager that you're going to put in uh, the extra effort to learn and learn more and then be able to add more value a lot more quickly than somebody that doesn't want to put in that effort. And I think that's a, uh, you know, a big deal, especially when you're hiring uh, a new graduate, uh, you, what you're really hiring is, is on potential on perceived potential of what that, that graduate can do. And so if they're not willing to show that they're ready to make that step and that commitment and, and learning, and understanding, then it 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 does uh, not give them the leg up that they might otherwise need. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, with that, uh, we're kind of out of time. As much as I'd love to uh, keep going, I think this topic is going to. Well, it's definitely going to keep going for the next couple of years, I guess, as the uh, as there's going to be so many changes, and then once the changes take place, and then uh, understanding what the changes are. Uh, but with that, Noor, thank you so much. It's really great to have you and really appreciate it. Where would uh, where can uh, folks go to find out more about you and your company? Sure. So if you want to learn more about advertising technology and software that is being made so people can ease the, the complicated and sometimes convoluted nature of building out a digital media plan or programmatic media plan, uh, you can go to basis.net, that's B-A-S-I-S dot N-E-T. And there's a lot of resources to educate yourself. I know Guy and I had some conversation today and people wanna learn more. People ask me in person when I you know, have conversations or, or meet clients, how do I learn more? I need to learn more about this topic. Uh, basis.net has a lot of resources to educate yourself on, on all things ad tech. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I was just uh, listening to one of your videos today. So uh, there's definitely a lot out there and really appreciate it. Uh, Noor, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it. And for our viewers, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on marketing. Otherwise, please visit marketingmachine.prorelevant.com to download the first chapter of my book and other valuable excerpts. And don't forget to sign up for more episodes. And if you really like this one, please give it five stars. Noor, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Guy. Thank you.